up until uh, Lent, uh, walking through what's called the lectionary. The lectionary is this guide that many denominations around the world use to help us walk through Scripture faithfully and tackle things that we normally wouldn't and read Scripture that we normally gloss over. Uh, and so it's been, it, it's, it's been this rhythm that we do it every year at the beginning of the year, uh, just as a way of saying we don't need to come up with anything creative for six weeks. We just need to kind of dive into the text the same way as the rest of the world is. So this morning, I will be in our gospel passage from the lectionary in Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to start turning there, you certainly can, because uh, I'll be in there in just a, just a second here. Uh, so, Matthew chapter 4. The beginning is the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, which is Really, the beginning of his ministry, he gets sent out into the he gets baptized and sent out in the wilderness to be tempted and, and tested for forty days of fasting and kind of readying himself for ministry. Uh, but now, uh, in in our passage for this morning, starting with, with verse twelve, uh, Jesus arrives back from his time in in solitude, and uh, and he arrives back to some unfortunate news. So so we pick up to uh, Matthew four, verse twelve. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, so as John the Baptist has been imprisoned, then Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. All right, so Jesus is beginning his ministry, uh, and it's different. It's kind of strange. It's unexpected, uh, and yet it's beautiful uh, in, in this new sort of ministry, but it's simultaneously not necessarily new or original. John the Baptist has been doing this good work. He's been preaching and he's been preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, and in a lot of ways, now Jesus just comes to continue that work. John gets imprisoned and the stage is set now for Jesus to take over and to continue this movement and to take it to the next level. John's been preparing the way and now there's kind of this catalytic movement or this catalytic moment in the story where, all right, John's gone and it's time for Jesus to shine. Uh, as Matthew Henry reminds us in his commentary on Matthew, God will not leave himself without witness, nor his church without guides. So there's been this person that's been coming along, preparing the way for Jesus, and now this moment has come for Jesus to, to take over. So he starts his ministry, but what is he up to? How does he start? This is the very beginning of what he's going to do in his earthly ministry, so how does he begin? And Matthew says that Jesus withdraws from Nazareth, from, from this kind of Jerusalem area. He withdraws to Galilee. He retreats. He pulls away, which is kind of a strange and unpredictable move, to be honest, because let's, let's be honest, no one would start their ministry, this big public unveiling of this brand new thing, no one would start their ministry in Galilee. Like, it's just, why would you do that? If you've come to do this brand new, huge, cosmic altering thing, uh, why would you start it in Galilee? Galilee wasn't just distant geographically. 
It was also distant in respect and reputation as well. Galilee was not looked highly upon. Galilee was full of nobodies, uneducated folks, biblically unsound folks, folks that got criticized often for not following the law well enough, for not knowing their Bible well enough. Uh, and, And the Galileans are even looked down upon because of their diversity. They get this nickname that we see in the text here, the Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. It's like the equivalent of saying that America is the melting pot. And yet here, this is not a compliment. To be Galilee of the nations, to be this diverse place, that that is a derogatory term that they're using. Galilee is seen as a dark place, which is exactly why Jesus goes there, right? Exactly why he goes there. Jesus cares about the dark places. Jesus cares about the places that no one else cares about. And to illustrate... Matthew picks up on these lines from Isaiah, this kind of poem from Isaiah about the people living in darkness, seeing a great light, and Matthew reinterprets that passage to explain and to validate exactly what Jesus is doing. He pulls this text out that probably had a little bit of different meaning about the return from exile, and yet he uses it to, to explain and to validate what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes bringing light to Galilee, to the forgotten, and to the judged, to the pagans, to the nations, because this is a Messiah for all. This is the Messiah. This is a God who has shown up for everyone. Dale Bruner says, Jesus' move to Galilee of the Gentiles demonstrates God's amazing initiative toward those who had never been considered. This is a beautiful move. So Matthew has given us this little intro about what Jesus is doing. He's bringing light into the darkness, but now it's really time for Jesus to shine. What, what's the proper response? What's the next move? What, what are we being called to do? Uh, what's the proper response to the light of Christ shining in the darkness? What's our response to be when we experience the light of the world shining in the darkness? Well, Jesus shows us in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus takes over. He starts to preach and to proclaim, to herald his message. And wouldn't you know it, it's the same exact message that John the Baptist has been saying uh, for the last period of time. Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. I love, again, how Bruner uh, translates this. He says uh, that it reads as, turn your lives around, because here comes the kingdom of the heavens. Turn your lives around, because here comes the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus has come to fulfill the thing that God has been doing from the very start. His message is a continuation of what God had wanted since Eden went sideways. Things got off kilter and God has been wanting this very thing from the very beginning. To repent, to turn around, to start over because there's a better way. The original way, the way of God's kingdom. Turn your lives around. So we're called to repent to turn our lives around. Jesus doesn't say what to turn from here, but it certainly seems like we know what we're to turn toward. Uh, We're to turn 
toward God and his kingdom. So anything that prevents that, we're to turn from. One commentator says, whatever keeps one from turning toward the coming kingdom is that from which we should turn. We're to repent, to turn from that which is keeping us from God's kingdom. And to be clear, biblical God-honoring repentance is not merely changing our minds. I think sometimes I think about repentance as like, I, I just say sorry, or I feel bad, or I feel regret. Uh, it's, it's not just changing our minds or feeling regret or asking for forgiveness. Biblical repentance, is, it's talking about a complete change of life direction. We're act, we were going in one way and we actually turn around and we go in a different way. I, I love how Clarence Jordan says it in his Cotton Patch Gospel. He says, reshape your lives for God's new order of the Spirit is confronting you. Like this new thing is in our face. And we were going in this, this one direction. And he's saying, you need to reshape your lives. You need to reform your lives into something differently because the Spirit of God is confronting you. I was doing this thing that I probably shouldn't be doing, that I probably need to change my mind about or feel re regret about or say I'm sorry for. And all that is good. But true repentance would mean turning from that thing toward God and never turning back again. It's turning around and going in the right direction, reshaping our lives for God's new order of the Spirit is confronting us. I think about a few biblical stories. I think about Lot and his family leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. And they don't do it perfectly, of course, because Lot's wife uh, ends up in a salt shaker. But... But the calling is repentance. You were doing this one thing, and I'm actually asking you to turn around and to walk in the other direction, to walk away from this thing. I'm asking you to reshape your lives and to walk away from what has become incredibly uh, troublesome behavior. Uh, or, or maybe we're more familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Uh, he's the perfect... Uh, uh, image of repentance. He, he had walked away from the good way of the Father, and he found himself in all sorts of evil, corrupt kind of practices, and he physically and spiritually turns his life back, and he heads in a, in a new direction. Uh, he, he leaves his self-made exile and returns back to the Father. To repent is to reshape our lives because the presence of God's shockingly good kingdom is here in our midst. It's to reshape everything. Repentance is the first and proper response to the light of Jesus dawning in the darkness. What's the first words he shares? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then the next section continues the words and ministry of Jesus. There's kind of this second way of thinking about what's our response when we witness the light of the world entering into the dark places of our world. And, and so uh, here's, here's uh, what Jesus says. Verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, 
and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going, from, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their, follow, and, and their father and followed him. So, uh, when Jesus shows up, when the light of Christ shines in the darkness, the, pro- the, the first proper response is repentance, uh, but then the second is just like it, and it's to follow. Uh, and really, those are basically the same things. A, a huge piece, an inseparable piece of turning our lives around, of recharting a new trajectory, of reshaping our lives, is actually to move forward in a new and better direction. Like if the prodigal son just turns around and starts heading uh, in a different direction, but it, or he just turns around and says, I'm sorry for what he did, but he doesn't actually go home, then there's no point to the story. That, that's a bad story. That's not a very convicting story. The, the point is to actually move forward into a new and better direction. We turn from all that opposes Jesus and his kingdom to Jesus and his way. We're not just turning we're turning and we're following. We start walking. We start following the king, following our rabbi. This second and equally important invitation from Jesus is really quite simple and yet terribly challenging. Follow me. Become my students. Be apprenticed to me. Join my school. Live with me. This is a holistic, all-in, life-altering, nothing-will-ever-be-the-same sort of invitation. In fact, the Greek word for follow is a present tense imperative kind of word, which stresses that this is supposed to be an ongoing continuity in this following. This isn't something where I turn around once and I follow. No, no, no. This is turning around from everything that's a distraction from the way of God and continuing to follow for the rest of our lives. Jesus is inviting them to a continuous walk with him, to live a life following him And the same is true for us. This is a long obedience in the same direction. Follow me is a beautiful calling for us to settle in and buckle up for the long haul with Jesus and his kingdom community. We're we're being invited into this new way of being human, which is actually the originally intended way of being human, and it's so good. God even says it's very good. And it's no coincidence that we're only three verses away from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Because this new way that Jesus is saying, follow me into, uh, this new thing that we're turning around for and walking with Jesus toward, is the exact life that Jesus will lay out in his famous sermon. This new way that we are being invited to repent from anything else and walk with Jesus toward looks exactly like the Sermon on the Mount. It it looks like blessing for all those who rarely get blessed. It looks like peace with one another and commitment to our spouses and the keeping of our word and the loving of our enemies and radical generosity and a life of prayer and and a lack of greed or anxiety or judgment, this new way, which is the original way, is the best possible way to live. And Jesus' first words in his ministry invite us to turn from any other way, 
to fix our eyes on Jesus and to follow him into this good, kind, generous, peaceful, forgiving, and loving way of existence. We're invited to repent, to turn, and then to follow Jesus. Now, one final thing. One, uh, one last thought for today. I, I know that this sentence that I'm about to utter uh, is going to seem kind of obvious and strange, but you'll have to bear with me here. Uh, one last thing for today. Uh, the thing I would say is that, that kind of comes to mind as I think through all this is that almost everything that Jesus asks us to do is something that we're supposed to do. All right. I'll say it again, and then I'll explain it. Almost everything that Jesus asks us to do is something we're supposed to do. All right. Let me explain. Too often, I think our faith can get really passive. It, it, our faith can be something that there, there's no real activity to it. There's, it doesn't take us anywhere. It exists almost entirely on the inside. Sometimes my faith can be something that happens almost entirely within the realm of my body, whether it's in my head or in my heart. We sometimes, I sometimes too often demonstrate my faith by what I think or what I believe. Our faith gets primarily lived out in our head in our hearts and not with our hands and our feet. Uh, too often, our, our faith is something passive, uh, which, of course, those kind of things aren't bad, but it's just not a complete picture of the life of faith that Jesus calls us to. Yes, we should have beliefs. Yes, uh, we should use our head and our heart uh, to, to prove uh, our belief. Yes, we should be people of prayer. All these kind of things that happen kind of within our bodies. But if that's all that we do, there's, there's a, that's a passive kind of faith. And I don't think it's a full and complete picture of the life of faith that Jesus is inviting us into. For Jesus, faith is active. It's not passive. Faith is a verb. Faith gets us going. It gets us moving. It gets us changing and growing and serving and loving. It gets us out of our, our space here and out doing other things. Repentance for Jesus isn't just a quick, I'm sorry for all the bad things that we did this day as our head hits the pillow at night. And that's kind of the way I think about repentance a lot of times. It's saying sorry or feeling regret. Uh, but there's... There's nothing shallow or flippant or even easy or quick about repentance. Repentance costs more than that. that that's the kind of repentance that Pharaoh was trying to do in, in the Exodus story. Uh, I, was, I was reading this week about all the plagues uh, as Moses is trying to bring his people out of, out of uh, uh, captivity in Egypt. And uh, right after the eighth plague, which is the locusts, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh says this kind of interesting thing. I mean, things have hit the fan, right? I mean, it's gotten bad, and the locusts are like the epitome of everything bad. Like, they've eaten everything, and, and Egypt is in ruins. And, and it says this, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Now, 
That kind of reads like true repentance, right? That, that reads like he's, he's turned a new leaf and they're gonna, he's gonna let these people go. It's gotten so bad that, all right, finally, Pharaoh's heart is no longer hard and he's gonna let his people go. Uh, and, and God actually listens and relents. He takes, a wind comes up and all the locusts are gone. And yet, in the very next line, Pharaoh's heart is still hard and the, the plagues must continue. There have to be two more. So he says these words, I'm so sorry for what I did. Please take these locusts away. And in the very next line, he's still hard. His heart is still hard. Pharaoh said he was sorry. He asked for forgiveness, but there was no real change of heart, which means there was no true repentance. He didn't, he didn't actually turn and follow this new God. Repentance is a turning around, an actual movement from darkness to light, a reshaping of our lives to better align with the way of Jesus. Repentance for Jesus is certainly not passive. It's a verb. It gets us moving. And following Jesus is the same way. Following Jesus isn't merely believing certain things about Jesus, It's a willingness to walk where he walks and do what he does and love who he loves and be generous where he is generous and on and on and on. Uh, Following Jesus actually takes us somewhere. It's a verb. Uh, Richard Rohr says it this way, Christianity is a lifestyle, a way of being in the world that is simple, nonviolent, shared, and loving. However, we made it into an established religion and all that goes with that and avoided the lifestyle change itself. One could be warlike, greedy, racist, selfish, and vain in most of Christian history and still believe that Jesus is one's personal Lord and Savior. The world has no time for such silliness anymore. Like we're called to more. We're called to more than that. Following Jesus means a willingness to actually change our lives, to step up, uh, uh, to, to step into better patterns, to stop that behavior or start that new habit or quit that job or lose those friends or serve those people or forgive those who hurt us or love those challenging people in our lives. Whatever it takes to align ourselves with the way of God, follow me asks us to do that very thing. What? Whatever next step we are, we are being invited into, uh, whatever it takes to, to be more consistent with the way of Jesus, follow me asks us to do those hard things. Faith is a verb. It asks us to actually reshape our lives and change our patterns and create better rhythms. But to be clear, Jesus isn't inviting us into an active faith of religious busyness. And even as I'm preaching, I find myself saying, that kind of sounds exhausting. Like what Jesus is calling me into kind of sounds exhausting. Like, there's so much. I need to, I need to repent of so much. I need to turn from so many things. Uh, and then this way of Jesus, it, it sounds, like, sounds like a lot. It almost sounds like more rules and more regulations. Uh, But this is where we get back to this Matthew 11 passage that that Paul preached about. Uh, An active faith isn't about doing more things necessarily. 
There are a million ways that we could be busy and active and, 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 uh, and have all these events and activities in our lives without actually turning our lives around and following Jesus. We could fill our lives with a million things of busyness and not actually follow Jesus, not actually be walking with him. Uh, so that's not what we're striving for. Busyness is not what we're striving for. We're, we're striving for an active faith, but not a busy faith. Jesus just wants us to walk with him and for us to be formed as his disciples along the way. Uh, I, I, love, I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this section in, in Matthew 11, this come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden section uh, in Matthew 11. Uh, this is how that passage reads in the message. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That, that is incredible. I find those words to be so amazing, so comforting, so lovely. I think, and I think that's the same exact invitation that we're getting from Matthew 4's follow me invitation. Come, come to me. Come with me. Get away with me. Recover and reshape your lives. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That's a beautiful, beautiful line. Come and walk with me. Follow me. Learn my ways because they're good. They're peaceful. There's less anxiety and worry and judgment in these ways. There's more love and generosity and forgiveness in these ways. They are the best possible ways to live. Come. Repent. Turn your lives around. Follow me. Walk with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I think that's our invitation from Jesus this morning. I think he's whispering those words to us. Not be busy with me. Not increase your activity with me. But I want you to walk with me. I don't, I'm not looking for a passive faith. Come. Repent. Turn your life around. Follow me. Walk with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So the question for us is how will we respond? How will we be people of repentance? What do we need to turn from? How is God inviting us to turn around and to travel back toward him and with him? What do we need to let go of? What's keeping us from his way? What, if we analyze our lives, what's, what's more in accordance with some other way that's not good and not peaceful and not loving and not kind and not forgiving, not generous? What, what, what things in my life do I need to say, I'm, I am done with that? And then what does it look like for us to actually follow Jesus, to lay down our nets and to actually go, walk, act, follow? Will we be open to Jesus leading us? in his unforced rhythms of grace. Let's heed Jesus' first two invitations in his ministry, to turn around and to follow him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that 
Your light has shone in the darkness. We have experienced that, Lord. We have experienced the darkness. We have experienced pain. We have experienced confusion and doubt. We have experienced loss and disease and violence and war. We know the darkness. And yet, I am grateful this morning that you have not left us to our own devices. That even as we uh, too often dwell in the darkness, we can see your glimmer of light. We can see the hope that you have brought as you came into the world. And so we are grateful for that. Help us to take the next radical steps to actually repent and to follow you in response to the fact that the light has come in the darkness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, just, a, just a couple of quick things before we close our service with a song.